You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. Welcome along to my podcast, Straight to Video. I'm your host, Rob Lane, and today I speak to a bit of a legend, absolute gem of a fella, and top bloke, Mr. Tony Wright of TerraVision. Tony and I have crossed paths a few times over the past couple of years, and every time the guy is a total gentleman, incredibly down-to-earth and super welcoming, particularly on his home turf at Bloomfield Square, which is Tony's amazing coffee shop in Otley, which you've got to go visit if you're ever in the area. Tony was, as ever, super fun during our chat, and I hope we dive into some stuff you've not heard before. As with a lot of these straight-to-video chats, I like to learn some real early things about the guest, and today is no different. Tony talks about growing up in the 70s, his love of printing and art both today and how that began. Plus, we also get some fun television and Top of the Pops talk in there too, so I hope you're going to enjoy this one. Speaking of Tony's coffee shop, it's only right that we give our usual shout to our pals Dead Skull Coffee. Dead Skull Coffee are the UK's finest rock and roll coffee company and you can find them at deadskullcoffee.co.uk where they have their own unique coffee blends for the likes of Thunder and Inglorious. Now a TerraVision Dead Skull Coffee blend will be something cool, right? Who knows? Maybe we can make that happen. If you head on over to deadskullcoffee.co.uk and add the promo code STV on checkout, you will bag yourself 15% off your order. Tony Wright will be out on the road from today, May the 6th, if you listen to this episode as it goes live, on one of his fantastic acoustic tours, which are always a blast with great songs and stories, and he'll have some copies of his new release, The Anti-Album, on sale months before the official release date, so head on over to Tony's Facebook page to see if there's a date near you over the coming weeks. Right now though, sit back and enjoy my straight-to-video chat with Terravision's Tony Wright. I don't know. I think you invited me to a room. I did. I did. How you doing, mate? You all right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> as well as can be expected, I suppose. Today's been good, yeah. Things are looking good. I had my tarot read the other day. Oh, shit, right. Is that something you're into? No. I just got told I should do it. So I did it. And uh, it's interesting. How was you on that one? Did you, like, keep, like, totally silent and let them tell you stuff? Because that's what they say. They can sometimes figure it out that way, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They say things like, oh, I can see guitars and a fast motorbike because you've got long hair. It was just interesting. Slightly more spiritual, I'd say. Like, where you've been, who you are, that kind of thing. It was good. It was very positive. Nice one, mate. Did they bring up anything that blew your mind that they figured out about you? No, it was weird, right? Because they said, you're going to get like a video call off someone who's doing a podcast. He won't know what he's doing with it. He'll get it all wrong. It will mess up, right? But then, whatever you do, don't cross the road outside the garage. Guess you'll get hit by a bus. 
But apart from that, no, nothing. No, things are getting better, I think. I think things are getting better. Yeah. How have you been? All right, mate. This podcast kept me super busy for nearly two years now. This is the world today. This is what people do, isn't it? You're a podcaster. And I know you're playing bands, and I know you're getting a van and drive to a gig. It's exactly the same. It's something you do or you don't. When I was born, a podcaster didn't exist. What would a podcaster have been in, like... Well, you, you're younger than me, aren't you? Not much. I'm up there with you. In the 70s? you remember the 70s? Just. I was born in 74. Yeah. They were great. I was six in 74. It were ace, you know? I'm just going to dive in then, because that's where I'm going to start. Where did you grow up? Was you born and raised right in the city of Bradford, or just kind of, like, in a suburb outside? Bradford's, like, just loads of areas. I mean, I, I guess what you're saying... I wasn't brought up like, because it's surrounded by the moors and the countryside. It's in like a bowl. The shape of it's like a bowl. Bradford isn't in a bowl. It's like the shape of it's a bowl. And all around the edges is green and sheep farming and meadows and moorland, wild, rugged moorland and outcrops of rock and great reservoirs and stuff. It says, but I didn't grow up there, no. I knew of them places, which is why I got into cycling. But I was born like more. I was born in a place called Thackley. I think it might have been nearly a village because we used to idle and it had, idle had like a village green and it had a church and it had two butchers and the butcher of idle, he got like 35 years. <laughs> no. So yeah, I was, I was born there. But the 70s were good for you. I loved them. I just lived in an orchard. I lived in an orchard that was opposite my house from being as soon as I could climb the wall to get out. I lived in the orchard, that's what I did. Making dens and forts and all that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly that. Swings, had a gang, we had a register that was under a roof tile that we'd dug into the ground and we'd do register and then fuck about. <laughs> Art's always been something that surrounded you. Didn't your dad, like, own an art gallery of some kind? My dad had the picture framers in an art gallery, yeah. Was that something you enjoyed visiting? Did that, like, give you an early taste of all that kind of thing? You know what, I just really, really like art. I just really like paintings and sculptures and where you can see someone really thinking. And like when I was a kid, before my dad had an art gallery, I mean, it must have been like an influence on it, obviously. But I just remember like going to Cartwright Hall and standing at one end where the big paintings were and walking towards them till I could work out how they got that picture to look like that using a brush and paint. And you'd have to walk right up to them and it'd be like you'd see a stripe of white paint like on the back of the Cavalier's boot, you know what I mean? As he sits on his horse with his sight hound in front of him. And uh, you'd see it and that'd be it. And then it, you're in. And I quite like that. It's like, all right, I've got a brush stroke. I could have done that, you know what I mean? But I couldn't do that big thing. But if I can do that, I just have to find out what they did. Oh, I can do that. Just join the dots from there. Was you a fan of Tony Hart? Was he a big influence on you? Yeah, of course. I loved Take Hart. I just loved it. And do you know what? The Australian bloke as well that we cannot anymore mention. He, you know, can you tell who I'm talking about yet? <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> I like the way he turned painting round and then it was like, no way! That was just a sponge bounced ball and then some stripes, and now you've turned it round, and it's a perfect portrait of Manhattan. I've still got a Rolf Aru badge somewhere up in the loft. It needs to stay there these days, though. <laughs> oh, my God, that's Rolf Aru. So, yeah, I grew up with a lot of pervs on the telly through the 70s, and on the top of the pops as well. Oh, my goodness. Surrounded by him, mate. We all was. 
Did you enjoy art and design at school? Was there much of an outlet for it? I didn't do the right lot at school, really. I, I, I didn't really like school. We did art. It was probably my favourite lesson. Art and PE. I was one of them kids. I just liked art and PE. You know, I'd do the drama thing rather than do geography thing. They've got a play on, all right, yeah, I'll be an extra. That sounds like a good DOS. We'll do that. Yeah, well, it's like, not that I wanted to be in Greece, the musical, but just I really didn't want to be in biology or whatever lesson I could have got out of. But, yeah, I just, I didn't really get it, so. But I liked, I like what I like, you know what I mean? I'm not bereft of stuff to do, or think, or like. Was music around your family too as well? Did I read like your granddad was a musician? Yeah, he was a brilliant musician. He played the banjo and the piano, and he used to play the piano a bit like a lady called Winifred Atwell, fast and jump up and spin round and, you know, like 1930s, 40s. And yeah, he, well, he said, and this is the best thing, like, this, is the, this is the best thing about having the granddad who was a musician. Because he said to me, you can play an instrument, you'll never have to buy a pint. And I just think that is why we should do this. But do you know what I mean? It should be something simple like that. Because he said it and just like, you go to the pub. Because every pub had a piano in it. He'd walk in a pub and he'd get on piano and he just knew hundreds of songs. He had like an elephant jotter pad. Do you remember elephant jotter pads? They had like asbestos pages. If you run your fingers down, you get spells in them. Do you remember? Paper were like thicker than bark. It was proper bad. And you'd have to write over great pieces of wood chip that had ended up in the pulp. Do you remember them? Elephant jot pads. And um, he had one of them and he just had this, this spider right? And just page after page of songs that he'd learned and he knew for his repertoire. I mean, a lot of people now will go on telly and they'll say, all I've ever wanted to do is sing, right? And you don't need to go to lessons to sing, because you can sing. Anyone can sing. Anyone in the world can sing. All you're doing, if you can't hit the notes, just mean the words, do you know what I mean? It's the easiest instrument. You carry it everywhere. You don't even have to load into it. You don't even need a band, you know what I mean? Did singing always appeal to you, though? Because guitar, well, I think you did organ lessons at eight, which wasn't your thing. How do you know about organ lessons? It's true, though, right? It is true. I hate the organ. If I could have been anything in a band, I'd want it to be a rhythm guitarist. I like the guitar. I think it's a great instrument. I love what you can do with it. But they are like singing. I've always liked singing. And that's what I was saying about people on the telly. Who stopped them? Who stopped them from singing? And if they have stopped them, well, then maybe there's a good reason. You know what I mean? But otherwise, there's nothing stopping you. Do you think it's because they're saying that because they're seeing it as a path to making money from it? That's what they mean. All I've ever wanted to do is be famous. That's what they mean. All I've ever wanted to do is sing. Right, sad song playing in the background and telling a story about how they knocked a bottle of coke over in the playground one day and spilled half of it. And they go up to the thing and then they've got a right brilliant voice. Well, they've got a great voice, so who's stopping them singing? Now, I'm not saying the crap for being on there. I'm just saying, why don't they just go and sing if that's all they wanted to do? Because they need to start in pubs and clubs, playing to 10 people, 50 people, 100 people, whatever, and then go onto the stadiums. Not insist on starting at Wembley in some final. And like, I'm not playing at Leicester than 3,000 people, I'm retiring. Yeah, where do you go from that? That's got to be like the biggest come down. I think that's why they have so many problems with them, because they've had that instant high, then it's going back to stark reality. Well, some of them will have known it, but hardly any of them will have known how ace it is. So just playing a bar or a pub. I go to this place every week, right? And it's like a quid in, and it's loads of folk musicians, right? And they all get up and they play two songs each. 
and some of them will be like modern, some of them will be like almost shanties, do you know what I mean? Some of them are a cappella, which I've still got to get over the phobia of a cappella. It's not right, do you know what I mean? I am getting better at it, not at singing it, listening to it. You know, like when they sing, I shall have a fishy on, and there's no music playing. It's a bit weird to me. Are you nervous for them? Are you nervous for it just to kind of fall apart at any moment? No, I just don't know why they're doing it. If they can't play, it's going to get the mates to play with them. I don't know what it is. I think I might have been, like, I don't know, murdered in a previous life by a barbershop quartet. That didn't come up in the tarot reading earlier on, though, did it? Yeah, it did, actually. I thought they were just barbers. I didn't know they were singing barbers. Oh, my God. <laughs> All the pieces are coming together now. <laughs> I think for you it was um, your older sister's music collection that got you interested in certain bands when she went off to college. That's kind of like the scene in, I don't know if you've seen the film Almost Famous, when William Miller's sister leaves him all air albums and he's like flicking through them all and he's blown away by all the crazy artwork from like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. And... No way. Yeah. Was that a similar thing for you? No, well, you just sounded like you were talking about what I did, yeah. Black Sabbath, like gatefold albums and listening to it while I were looking at it and Led Zeppelin and Leonard Cohen. You know, you played what you had, you know, so and it was well varied. And, and yeah, again, it was guitars. It was a lot of guitars. So, yeah, I used to pose with my tennis racket because I didn't have a guitar. I guess these would have been a lot of bands that perhaps your friends didn't know about at the time. Was it something you could, like, pass on to your friends, say, oh, I've listened to this amazing album, or look at this crazy guy like David Bowie on this album? Was it something you could pass on to your friends? I remember once getting Nena Cherry a bit later on in life, getting Nena Cherry's role like Sushi album, and saying to my mate, listen to this, it's amazing. And he went, is it metal? <laughs> I went, no, and he went, oh, I'm not listening to it. And a lot of them, I mean, I missed out. I missed out on Motorhead and ACDC because I was listening to this record collection that was going to take me those years that I should have been listening to my, the same stuff as the people I knew. I should have been listening to that. But I was just engrossed. I used to go to the record library in Bradford and hire out like, <laughs> what were they called? Oh, my goodness, Blue Oyster Cult album. And rent them for a week for like 30p. Look at the cover for ages. Yeah. That's really good, though, for future stuff, because you had no filter or, like, you're not totally metal, you're not totally pop. You're taking everything on face value and just, what can I listen to today? What awesome music am I going to discover? That's priceless, really. Yeah, but the stuff that I'd say had that effect on me would have been what were on the radio when we were driving to Morecambe with my mum. Not so much when I was older and I got the record collection, and it will have been. The main ones I remember is Elton John. And the carpenters. Some serious melodies there. Well, that's it. So we used to sit in the car. It was a white one first, OAK315M. Get out of here. No, that was the first car I remember. And then it was a white Fiat 127. Then we got a green Fiat 127 that was an N-Reg, old N. So it must have been one newer than the M-Reg. And we had a speaker just in front of the gear stick. So if you sat in the middle, you didn't have to wear a seatbelt. Sit in the middle and you'd just get it. So we'd be singing, day after day, I must live with, you know, like that. Can't remember it now. Oh, we'd be singing, I sat on the roof, kicked off the mall. I loved that record. I loved it. And then he let Ronan Keating sing it. Do you remember when he did a version? Yeah, yeah. And do you know what I thought? As soon as I heard him singing, he went, kicked off the mosh, right? And I thought, you've never kicked off a moss in your life, mate. You've never kicked off a moss. And then he went, 
I shot on the roof and I thought, yeah, I bet you shot on the roof. <laughs> I shot on the roof and kicked off the marsh. It's like, no, mate, you just shot on the roof. Oh, I'd love to see you actually tell Ronan Keating that at some point. <laughs> but it just like, do you know what? Why touch something that is so amazing? Write your own freaking song. Do you know what I mean? Get off it, Ronan Keating. Get off it. Even Gary Barlow tries to write his own songs. Come on. It's all about the original material, old Gary is. Yeah, and it don't matter how bad it is, at least he wrote it. Let it shine. Don't matter how terrible it is, he, at least he wrote it, Ronan. <laughs> Mint. Did you become a collector of records at all? Did, like, Bradford have any good record shops? Or was you just hiring them from the library? I'd hire them from the library. I'd go to HMV. I'd go to Rocksaw for, like, older vinyl, Wax Museum. There were another record shop, what were they called? They were HMV. Didn't have a Virgin back then, did you? No, it were completely different. Oh my God, I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, we had another record shop. A big one like HMV, but it wasn't HMV. Not our price. Our price seems to come up in quite a few conversations. No, I think it was different to our price, but I think we had an our price as well. I think our price bought this one out. Did you have anybody at school who, like, recommended records to you, or was you pretty much just finding your own stuff because you were so open-minded about so many bands? Do you know what? I didn't really get on at school. I didn't... I don't know if you picked that up from before. I didn't really like school. I'd moved schools, like middle school. All my mates that I'd grown up with and the friends that I had, I didn't have anymore. And I went to another school and everybody was completely different mindset to the place I'd come from. So it wasn't like just, I don't know what it was like really, but a lot of them were what I'd call dressers. So they'd aspire to like waffle parapants and stuff like that, Terry Wogan shirts and stuff. They were trendy. And I didn't have a lot of mates. I have some people I still know to this day, and the great guys, do you know what I mean? But I still keep myself to myself even now, you know, but I kind of did then. But if I was going to talk to anybody, I'd talk to them. We were brought together by the likes of Queen, obviously. You're a big Free fan as well, aren't you? Yeah, I loved Free. I loved Free. I think that was where I wanted to be the uh, rhythm guitarist. Not because Paul Kossoff was like rhythm, but it was just because I really liked the way Paul Kossoff played guitar. But like, I was growing up in a world of widdly woo, do you know what I mean? What about Bad Company? Where do you stand on Free and Bad Company? Do you see them as two totally separate bands? They are two separate bands, aren't they? They're the gateway to Mock the Hoople. And all the young dudes, which is your gateway to your Bowie, which is now you're leaving rock and blues and you go into real alternative but classical songwriting. That's my journey, isn't it? Because you've got Elton, you've got David Bowie. So, yeah, there's like a big family tree, isn't there? Everyone will have one, but and everyone's is different, isn't there? But we'll all have branches where we're like, oh, yeah, Queen, oh, yeah, and Dexy's Midnight Runners. That was one of the things as well. I might have had, like, longish hair and a... Moair jumper and a Jesus cheesecloth shirt and holes in my knees and blue trainers, which was what I wore for school. But I still liked good music. Where did printing get on your horizon? Was that after you left school? Did you like a YTS thing? Was that your introduction to print? My uh, granddad was a printer. The granddad who played the banjolele. He was a printer, but that's why I became a printer. I wanted to do graphics, but I didn't get any exam results, so I couldn't go to college to do any art or anything like that. So I ended up on an engineering course, which was really bad, because they just made you do something. And it's like I was making a baking tray, and it was rubbish. It was just not for me. And then I managed to get on a YTS scheme. Do you remember when 
you see, you won't remember when Torres went in first time round and they said, don't have an apprenticeship where you train someone for five years to do a job properly and pay them a decent wage and then they work for you and eventually go on and start their own business. We went, here, give him 25 quid a week for 36 hours. You can sack him after a year. Oh, he'll be great grateful you put his money up to 44 quid. What an idiot. So I got on one of them and I wanted to go to um, the graphics department at this printers and then when i got there they said they didn't have any space in the graphics but they did have a space on the printing floor and when i were on the printing floor there's something great about a printing floor it's so true when you're at a print shop you start on a one color press ours were flatbed like boom boom like motor run but you'd put a polymer plate onto the bottom of like a form stick it all in and then you put ink in back and the rollers would come round, ink it up, and it would go bang, bang, like that, and paper would go through, like on a roll. Then when you got promoted, you got onto, like, the four-colour presses, and they go, like that, a bit faster, and it was great. So you've got this, one-colour presses going. And then the rotary presses kick in, their cylinders, they go around and they go, so you've got this full-on dance beat every day, depending who's got what job on and who starts to press up first and gets set up first. You've got a different beat every day. I can tell you there's words that I wrote that have been out and charted that I wrote behind them printing presses. Get out. Yeah, I wrote I write words to the... I swear. And you know what else as well? It's just the natural. I'm sure it, I can't be the only person to think it. And then I heard an interview with Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream. And he said he worked at a print shop and he loved the rhythm of the printing shop when it got going. I swear, we had like three, they were called Gallus B160s. We had two Gallus Rotary presses and we had three Gallus for flatbed printers. It were ace. Because you're like a fan of the old letterpress kind of stuff. It would have advanced from that when you were doing it, though, right? Yeah, I wasn't setting tight. Do you want to see my wall of words? I think I've seen it before, haven't I? I'll show you. It's over here. You might have seen it if you've been here. Oh, nice. No, I don't think... How long you had that up there? I did it in lockdown. Oh, okay. No, I've not seen that then. That's awesome, man. Isn't it? So, yeah, that's what I like doing now. I really like the fact that those letters have said a lot of shit in the time, you know. You have like an almost romantic way of viewing like the old letterpress style of printing, like the letters you use to create words have said things before. And I think you said they can like speak other languages. That's a lovely way of looking at it. They're completely bilingual. Depends what order you put them in. But yeah, they're a hundred years old, some of them. So imagine, imagine what that letter A or that letter E or that S. Imagine what it said in its time. I think I said it to you before it. So I've got all my wooden font. I get a piece of letter out. The letter A, it's 100 years old, 90 years old, whatever. And I think that could have been the A of something, a poster that was something horrific like We Are At War. It could have been one of the A's in that poster. And then it went back in the drawer with the other A's and the rest of the alphabet. Next time it came out, it might have said Dig For Britain, you know, do this. Then it went back in the drawer. Might stay there for ages until someone wanted to tell you that the Beatles were playing at the town hall. It might have been the A in Beatles, do you know what I mean? And it's like, what a what a talent to be able to be one thing and take you from absolute horror to absolute joy. Have you always had that view on it or is that something that came to you later on? Is that something that you've always noticed? When I was a printer, I was printing litter. That's what I was printing. I was printing stuff that was inevitably going to end up in a bin. Stuff that were going to blow around in the roads. 
because it fell out when they came to empty it. You know, we're printing litter, and that's all I think now is I just don't want to make litter, so I'll try and make something that's nice, a poster that says something, a phrase or just a, a motto or whatever that's just, yeah, I get it. I did one poster that I really like at the moment. It's really simple. It just says, never trust the Tory. Really simple, black and white, but it's brilliant. It's like my favourite poster. I'm going to put it up in my window, facing out. Let's see how that goes down. <laughs> you have your own printing press in your coffee shop, Bloomfield Square. When did you decide to go back into printing? Was it during the time Terrorvision ran a bit of a break? What lured you back in? So I do little things like little chiselly woodcuts, stuff like that, lino cuts, whatever. And then a mate of mine mentioned he'd seen this press, so we got it. And then I just kept adding to it. But it's like massive now. My press that I print my cards on, my treadle press, I can print up to like an A4 sheet of paper. I run it with my foot, got a big flywheel going. It doesn't have any safety devices on it. And it picks up the ink and it puts it onto the form that I've made. And yeah, and it prints and it's got a voice. Even now, even my press now has a voice. It sings more than rhythm, this one. How old is your press? Because your coffee shop, Bloomfield Square, is located in Otley to the north of Bradford. And I think Otley itself has something of a print history, right? Yeah, it does. But my press is 1895. That's the press that I um, print on. I have another press that I crease on, which means that when I make the card. So I get card and I put it through an old guillotine that you have to pull that <laughs> So it's the right size to then put on the creasing press. So I put all these oblongs of card in. That works on the treadle. I spin wheel on that, get my foot going. And that just puts a line in the middle of every card. So it folds properly instead of trying to do it afterwards. And then I put it on the press and that's it. The one that creases is 1880. Was you aware of like the print history in Otley when you set up there? No, I knew about it. I mean, I sound really sad now, don't I? Because I sound like this, I'm like this print nerd. Yeah, I've moved to Watley because it's the home of the Wharfdale Press. It's one of them things. I love doing it. It relaxes me. Gets something out of my system. I could tell. You could tell how much you love it in the way you speak about it. It's great. Diving back into the music just a little bit. I could keep you all night talking about print and all that kind of stuff. Before you joined Terrorvision, had you seen Lee or Mark or anybody around town in bars or clubs in Bradford before you joined? I first sort of spoke to Sark when I'd seen a band he were in playing that had Lee and Shutty in it and a different guy singing. I just saw him in a pub and so I said I, I liked the band that he were in and when were they playing again? And he said, oh, we're not because we're looking for a singer. So I went, oh, I'll sing for you. And he went, no, you're all right. And so that was how I met Sark, Mark. Why did he say that to you? Oh, no, you're all right. He had big hair, like the babysitters, sort of like a bit more, a bit more like Motley Crue. Yeah, like Hanoi Roxy kind of stuff. Yeah, they weren't glam. It was like disheveled sort of, a bit sort of glam punk sort of thing. And I thought it looked cool. I was just a greasy hippie, to be fair. I wasn't like that at all. And then ages later, he used to DJ at this club I used to go in. So I would have known about him. And he'd been in a band before called Harlequin. And I'd seen them play. And then he wanted to go see Zodiac Mindwalk, who was the first band I think we supported. Or maybe one of the first bands, maybe Playtown Troop or something like that. But he couldn't get anyone to stand in DJing for him. So he asked me. He said, if you do it, you can come and audition for the band if you want. So I went, all right. So I said, what shall I sing? And he said, Teenage Kicks. So I went up to shut his dad's house on the bus. Did I have a car then? I went up to shut his dad's house anyway. 
And um, sang, well, I went into the cellar, but I didn't sing it. Lee sang it. I didn't sing it. I sat on drum riser. That was it. You got the gig without even actually having to sing. Yeah, it's like that love story, isn't it, where you just met on a Friday night, you thought, I'll stay for the weekend, and 35 years later. That's how it usually works. The band had such like a mixed bag of influences. I think you said like everyone liked something different. One of the only real connections was that it was all loud music. When things began to really take off for you during like the mid-90s, music and particularly rock music, it was just all over the place. But I think in a way that benefited you because you couldn't be categorised. Usually that causes a problem, but I think back then it was like perfect timing for you guys. It meant you could be doing Donington one weekend and then Reading the next, followed by Top of the Pops because you had a massive hit. Yeah, we were all over the place though as well, weren't we? You know, like I think when we worked with producers, they brought it all in together a bit. So like our Mac friends and and regular urban survivors, they're sort of tame versions. And then we start to um, maybe a mixture of trying to do our own thing, but losing a bit of sight. We started to do like shaving peaches, didn't we? And that were produced by different people. And that's why it sounds like it's all over the place. But you're right. It was great, though. Top of the Pops were back again. And you could watch a rock band and then watch your crappy boy band, do you know what I mean? Or your latest competition winner. I love to ask musicians about the Top of the Pops memories if they made an appearance, but you guys were on that endless times. I think even Meatloaf introduced you when you did Oblivion. Exactly, you see, with a song like that, you're not going to remember it, are you? I don't remember it. Do you have any particularly fond memories that jump to mind from the various appearances? There must be loads, though. I got to introduce Boyzone on Top of the Pops. I got to introduce Top of the Pops. I hosted it for an evening. On your own or did you have a co-host? No, it was just me. I remember Bill Blackwell. He just said you can say what you like. I remember saying, ladies and gentlemen, strap on your helmets and prepare to enter the boy zone. And then the cameras panned to boy zone. <laughs> did that actually get aired? Yeah, it did. Yeah. None of them got it except for the one without accessories. Bleached bit, eyebrow piercing, tattoos, whatever, nose ring. Little uh, jazz beard. You know the one I mean. I know what you mean, yeah. Did it ever get old or was it? did it always have the magic going on top of the pops? It was great. To be fair, we're just four lads from Bradford who wrote some tunes, got on a bus, travelled and played all over the place and had the best gang mentality like time. And we were lucky that we actually earned a decent living out of it as well. And everything was free and nothing were out of bounds and it was the 90s. We were all a bit fried, but, you know, that's a good thing. <laughs> Some of your early gigs included the likes of, I think you supported the Ramones. Didn't you open for Slaughter? We did, yeah. How was that? I'm a big Slaughter fan, so if you've got any goss on them, I'd love to know. Can't tell you if you're a fan. No, you can't. No, you don't up on me. I wouldn't, because I'd love to hear it. I can't tell you anyway, because this is a family show. Oh, come on. You got so, You must have some Dana Strum stories. There's people watching who have families, and so I can't for that reason. I wasn't that bad, but I wasn't... Listening. No, I can't. I can't, because you just think ill of them. Oh, mate. <laughs> If we were sat in House of Commons, we'd be sat on opposite sides. It is quite a contrast, though, television and slaughter. Exactly, and, and that's exactly what it was, a contrast in every single way. Are they like some sort of straight-edge Christian rock band? No, it was pretty much the backing band of Vinnie Vincent Invasion, so Lee was probably losing his mind if he knew that. I don't think Lee was in his mind at that time. <laughs> I don't think any of us were, which is probably why it happened, but it's all bye-bye now. Have I got to come for a coffee now to tell me off the record? Well, that's exciting. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>
just kind of in closing, because you're not going to tell me the slaughter story, so shit. <laughs> I'll bring it all to a close. You're getting set to head out on another of your hugely popular acoustic tours. You have the new record, The Anti-Album, all set to go, I believe. Got, like, 300 copies of The Anti-Album. I think it's quite a journey, is this album. I think it tells a story. And it's called The Anti-Album. I want people to listen to it. When I was writing the songs, I'd hear things that people are saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. People haven't got the patience now to listen to a 15-second intro even. You've got to be into the hook of the song in eight seconds. And so I thought, all right, yeah, okay, so I'm putting a 30-second intro on this one. And I'm going to put a middle eight that just tries to drift off. You know, like every musician who plays a guitar or whatever, we're all, every one of us, and you're a liar if you deny it, you're trying to write the chain by Fleetwood Mac, that bit where it goes down. And then, then you can stop this cursed thing that rests upon your shoulders. But do you know what? Great bass lines, which is that. I recently thought this. You know, if time had like shifted just enough, so Queen's Under Pressure and the film Jaws to me are a period of time in my life. But imagine if Queen had written. Under pressure, do them come down on me. Dun 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 and down and down like that, right? And Jaws, the shark, had gone like dun 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 dun. How brilliant would that have been? That's somebody's job now to do a video edit of Jaws with the under pressure baseline. It's like it's gonna get killed by a shark. Yeah, but he's a really funky shark. That's the alternative. Tony Wright universe, that is, where that's an actual thing. It is a thing. Do it. Think it. There's loads of stuff like that that you can do. It's good. (laughs) Super. Could you have ever seen Tony Wright doing acoustic shows when you first got into music, or is that something that would have totally made sense to him when you was flicking through those albums of your sister's music collection? I'm not the world's greatest guitarist now, but I couldn't play guitar then. So I want a louder guitar. Not because we're like Quakers or something, but... I messed it up with the organ. Do you remember I said I don't like organs? I'd messed it up because I'd gone to lessons, got this bloody organ, and it was like, oh, Anthony ought to learn it. It's like, no, I don't want to learn. Anyway, the guy who was teaching me the organ, Mr. Osborne, he caught on quite fast that I wasn't a natural organist, but he knew that I liked music. So as long as I could do my scales up and down with both hands, that's all I ever got to. That and when the saints go marching in. I never even got to Claire de Lune. And after every lesson, because it was only like seven or something, you get a lolly off at Topper Organ, and that'd be well done. There you go, and a refresher lolly. So I think what he was trying to do was inspire me. So I'd do my scales, and then he'd go like, right, sit there, give me lolly. So I'd sit there with lolly, like Kojak, listening to him play way out jazz. And he was great at it. Nothing I wanted to do about what he was doing, but he was good at it. So I'd sit there with a lolly, at seven, listening to avant-garde jazz with Mr. Osborne's house for an hour or half an hour. Ever. Which your mum's paying for. And that's why, when I was crying in the back of the car, like, <laughs> like, because I got caught. And that's it. That's it. And it wasn't like I went, but I really want to play the organ. I went, but I want to play guitar. It's no, you know, having when you had a chance, you blew it kind of thing. Then, with my YTS skin, I got £25. I saved up and I bought two 12-pound classical guitars because I thought I'd spend £25 on a guitar 
and then I could get two classicals for 12 quid each. So I bought them two. I've still got one of them. No way. Yeah, the other one, I think I still know who's got it. It's gone, like, to a mate's sister's kids or whatever like that. That should be on the wall in Bloomfield Square, sir. The first Tony Wright guitar. And I bought that, and then I booked myself ten lessons with Albie Harrop down at Ace Wall Music in Bradford, which was next to the shop that sold pets that could kill you, like, snakes and tarantulas and scorpions and there was a lad in there i think he was called adam and he'd always talk to me i got on with adam he just worked in this shop that sold tarantulas and stuff he went off to be a zookeeper somewhere actually and then the smithy pub were there as well and it was a shop where you'd walk in if you could travel back in time as mr ben put on your the sweet costume and go into the wardrobe walk out the other side so you had copycat real echo chambers 10 quid they were all going out of fashion because everyone wanted these new fancy pedals and all these old classic pedals was for nothing sound sonic distortions do you know what i mean it was crazy what you could get back then and they're making copies of it now but it were all being thrown away see-through perspex guitars burns guitars were cheap and Albie Harrop, I booked 10 lessons with him. He's actually Adele's uncle, actually. Really? Yeah. It's small world, isn't it? She can't play guitar. Or she might be able to. She can sing. So yeah, I booked 10 lessons with him. And he says, what do you want to learn? So I got bought a classical guitar. And I says, I want to play like Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin. And he sort of went, well, that's good because he plays like a classical style. He, he must have learned classical guitar. So he taught me green sleeves. He taught me theme from the deer hunter. And then something else, and then my 10 weeks were up. But then I realised I wanted an electric guitar. So he built me this electric guitar. It was a Hondo 2 guitar, and he painted it all matte black, and it had DiMazio pickups in it, and a booster switch. So you could just flick it, and they just, it was like a distortion pedal, but on the switch. I used to cart it around, and think Zach used it as a spare right in the early days. I don't think he even wanted it as a spare, I'd just take it. Then it got nicked from Queen's All Celebar. Oh, shit. I was going to say, where did it end up? No, in some thieves' house. But I still had my classical, and I've always played it. And when I'm at home, I always play an acoustic guitar. If I'm writing tunes, I always write an acoustic guitar. Because I can't really play an electric guitar. There's no point in making it ring out notes that you hit, because I can't stop them. I need something a bit deader than that. So I love my acoustic guitar, and I've always played an acoustic guitar. When television got signed, I bought a nice acoustic guitar. And what I thought was a nice acoustic guitar back then. It was a Fenix, F-E-N-I-X, like black acoustic guitar. I thought it was great. My son's got it now. I like the fact that they're simple and they're for singing songs on. If you can't sing a song on a guitar, you know. Don't go a cappella, whatever you do. Yeah. Imagine taking all the recording studios at campfire with you. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Right. Here we go. So you can press a button. <laughs> Sounds like printing presses. And do you know what? It's the nearest thing I'll get to be able to speak another language, and I can't. But with music, I think you can. I'll listen to songs that I can't understand the words, but then I'll listen to stuff where the singing's terrible, but it's great words. I love that the acoustic thing is just this amazing, not sideline, just something that runs next to Terravision, Bloomfield Square, and you've got the acoustic stuff. So I'm excited to see you. Yeah, are you going to come to one of these? Hopefully I'll come to Leicester, mate. I think that's the nearest one. That'd be good, yeah. Yeah, it'd be good to see you. All right, mate. Well, lovely to see you. Have fun on the shows and I'll see you soon. Cheers, buddy. See you later, mate. Ta-da.
Massive thank you to Tony Wright of Terrorvision for sharing some great stories with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. Lovely to chat with him, and I hope you had fun listening. Maybe next time I'm up at Bloomfield Square, I can coax the slaughter story out of him, but we'll see. Don't forget, Tony is on tour all over the country with one of his superb acoustic shows. Just head on over to his Facebook page to get all the dates. And whilst you're at a show, pick up his new collection of songs, the Anti-Album, months before the official release date. If you've enjoyed today's show, then this and over 180 more episodes can be aired at stvpod.com, along with some STV music, videos and merchandise. There's also a Patreon page too, where you can support the show that little bit extra. I want to send a big shout out and hello to the latest straight-to-video patron, Kenny Kendrick, for jumping on board. Great to have you here, pal, and thanks for the support. If you too would like to get involved, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash stvpod for all the information you need. That is all for today's show. Thanks so much for listening, and please share with any friends you think will enjoy these chats too. But in the meantime, look after yourselves and speak again real soon.